I'm Becky Quick of CNBC and your host of The Forum. I'll be guiding you through exclusive conversations among some of the world's global leaders, conversations previously held behind the club's doors. But today, we invite you in. The Economic Club of New York serves as the premier forum for nonpartisan discussion dedicated to connecting the world's brightest minds with preeminent public and private sector leaders. A nonprofit 501c3, the club is a 115-year-old platform for the conversations that help shape the future of our world. The Economic Club of New York, brightest minds, critical conversations, catalyst for innovation. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Forum. Many of the world's most powerful leaders, those sitting at the top of corporations and institutions with immeasurable global impact, have spoken on the Economic Club of New York stage. Today, we'll share their words from the club's podium. Join us to hear from seven different CEOs on their perspectives on leadership, what it takes to make a lasting impact, the core values that drive them forward, and the challenges and opportunities that will shape our future. Let's start off with James Gorman, the CEO of Morgan Stanley. So number one, you have to focus on your culture. It's not, it's not just about making money, generating the returns we all wanna make, doing the business we wanna do, but you have to do it the right way. And this is something which is a constant challenge given the complexity of our business, uh, the, just the nature of the beast. So I would say the biggest lesson learned is it's, it's, you've gotta have a strategy which works in difficult times, not just good times. You've gotta have a culture which endures so people make the right decision when the call is a tough one to make. They err on the side of being conservative. And frankly, just take a little risk off the table. Be prepared to give a little back to hedge against the unforeseen. Now, if you do all of those things and you have good transition to management, deep ventures of, and talented management, and you build a diverse organization that's inclusive of everybody, you, you know, you've got a real shot at doing our jobs, which is to serve the global markets match issuers and investors, match borrowers and savers. That's basically what we're designed to do. To be an exceptional leader and a standout CEO, you have to put people first. People over profit is a major theme of modern leadership. And by extension, CEOs have to be increasingly culture-minded. Brad Jacobs, career CEO of several multi-billion dollar companies like XPO Logistics, United Rentals, and United Waste System, shares his perspective on building effective teams. It's the teams. I've had the honor to lead those teams, and I assembled those teams, and I put together great people, and we executed strategies that worked, that capitalized on opportunities that were there at that time. But it's the people. It's always about the people. It's always, always, always about the people. If the strategy needs a little adaptation, if you have great people, you'll adapt it. If the tactics need some changing due to changing circumstances, if you have great people, they'll change the tactics. It's always about the people. He continues to describe how once you have great people, you have to create the type of culture that allows them the ability to innovate, be creative, and propel the company forward. You need feedback loops between all the different levels of the organization. You need feedback loops between the company and its various stakeholders, its customers, its vendors, its shareholders. You need feedback loops between the board and management. It's all about feedback loops between the people. So great people, but strong levels of communication that's honest. So you have to create a, an environment where it's safe to disagree, where it's mm -hmm. okay to right. respectfully present a different opinion. And that dialectical atmosphere is where 
you get to the right solutions and the right ideas, and, and that's where the creativity emerges from. Many of today's most successful CEOs agree on the importance of people and culture, and now, more than ever, are leading with humanity and humility first. What does that mean? Hans Vesberg, the chairman and CEO of Verizon Communications, shares some of his guiding principles. No, I think that the values I got from my, my father early on, especially around teamwork and not believing that you are somebody better than anybody else and seeing that you get the diversity out of the team, uh, the respect from anybody, everybody else, I think that, that comes from my father and, and uh, that is guiding me today, even though I have a little bit larger team than I'm managing today. Uh, that's the, try to keep that simple rules with respect for people. Everybody's valuable. Diversity is important for success. Everybody's different. Build on the strength instead of the weaknesses. Here's more advice from Hans on how to approach leadership effectively. I would say that I have several different types that I have developed over the years, but in general, I think it in three dimensions of my leadership. First of all, my self-leadership. I mean, uh, if you're going to lead others, you, you need to start understanding yourself before you lead others. So I, I work a lot about assessing myself, how I can improve and how I perform. And of course, talk to a lot of people. Secondly, is how you deal with people around you, uh, the people above you, on the sides and below you. Uh, because all three stakeholders in an organization like this is enormously important. So I have models for how I work with my bosses. And then finally, the third piece of my leadership is very much centered on the strategic leadership that I spend time on the absolutely critical things of the company and the things that only I can do because I can do a lot of things in a company like this where I like to do things, but you know, there are certain things only I can do and I spend time on that. So it's a three-pronged leadership model, which I basically tell everybody in my company to do the same. So all our leadership training is based on that three-pronged model. The CEO of United Airlines, Scott Kirby, shares his advice on managing and treating employees the right way. Let's hear what he has to say. It's about making our employees proud. When our employees are proud and feel good about what's happening at the airline, we mostly can find things that we agree on. But most importantly, even when we disagree, we can disagree without being disagreeable. By the way, a line that would be good for Washington <laughs> to do. Uh, you know, because we're not going to always agree on everything. Um, but that doesn't mean we have to, you know, attack each other personally or disparage each other. We can listen respectfully. Um, we might disagree, but we can at least uh, we can at least try to to be friends and we can find the things that we are aligned on. And on those, we can push really hard and we can put the disagreements to the side, settle those through whatever process, agreements, yep. whatever processes we need. Um, but staying focused on making United the biggest and the best airline in the world really helps give us a North Star that most things, you know, our interests are aligned. What we are hearing is CEOs need more than sheer business intelligence to lead. They need a level of emotional intelligence and humility to win the hearts and minds of their people. Many focus on igniting the potential of each individual they lead rather than exercising an indisputable power over them. But how can this approach guide the tangible success of a business considering the challenge of our current economic climate of rising inflation and climbing interest rates? How can culture be a key to navigating real challenges? On that end, let's look to Brad Jacobs. Well, it, there's, there's almost always turbulence. There's, there's, things are changing. I mean, everything's right. changing always. Shortages are turning into gluts and gluts are turning into shortages and you have to zig and zag. And it goes back to your first question. You have to have these feedback loops and you have to have that environment where it's safe to say what's really going on without any fear of 
a backlash, actually encouraging people to do that. And then it becomes clear what to do. People can rise to their full potential in the right culture, but also with the right tools. We all know technology is a crucial part of enabling the work of most organizations. How does technology affect the attraction and retention of talented people? Paul Cormier, the president and CEO of Red Hat, sheds some light on it, especially when it comes to the future of work. Well, I think the technology for remote work had been there. I mean, you know, Zoom and WebEx and, you know, blue jeans. Yes, it it, it had been there. As I said, as a company, we we were very much... In, into those because as a company we had a very dispersed workforce. But, but having said that, I, I think, just let me divert a little bit from technology, even on the human side, before pre-pandemic, you know, there was always people in our meetings, uh, there was always people in our meetings, some, most were maybe in the room and some were remote, but it was a different dynamic. The in the room people worked differently together. The almost the remote people didn't almost, it was tough to get a voice sometime. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think as we all went home, the dynamic of that changed. And you know, as we all went home, I actually think how we interact using those technologies now actually sharpened. And I think that made us, I'm just speaking for ourselves, I think that made us a better company mm-hmm. for the future mm-hmm. because we always sort of had been on hire the, you know, hire the best person no matter where they are, sort of. Now we really are on, on that. And so I think now we have the opportunity to get even more talent um, no matter where they are, but also have even more productive interactions mm-hmm. with each other. I mean, I have, I have managers in the company that they manage, you know, you know, everything from, you know, day-to-day work to salary reviews to performance and everything else, your employees that are on different continents mm-hmm. and, and, and may never get in the same room with each other. So I think we've all gotten better with that. We sort of had a head start, but I think even companies that had no remote possibility had to do it overnight. Mm-hmm. And, and I, think, I think the future is going to be, sorry for the overuse of the word, but some type of hybrid. Mm-hmm. Environment and I, and I think we've sort of set ourselves up through the pandemic to do that right. I think it's going to be up to companies' cultures to drive how much they, they really want to go with that. Something that's changed significantly in the past few years is the labor market. If you just focus on the number of open positions versus the number of unemployed workers, 11 million open positions versus just under 6 million unemployed workers, that 5 million person gap is the biggest that we've had going all the way back to the 1950s. Charlie Evans, the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, shared his perspective with the club. As I mentioned earlier, it's a vibrant market. So, you know, workers looking for, you know, gainful employment often have many opportunities. Um, You know, professionals uh, working in office settings, they have even more opportunities, right? Where am I going to work, right? I might even be able to work for the same employer, but I might not be working in Chicago or New York. I could be working in Florida or someplace like that. So there are a lot of uh, challenges there. Now, if you're talking about job openings, there's sort of this long, it's almost cyclical that um, in environments like this, um, you have lots of job openings. You know, sometimes you have duplicate openings that are posted because they're really looking, you know, for workers. So they advertise in multiple places and that can get counted in that regard. I think it's, I'm, as I get this question more, I should be um, 
uh, utilizing my staff on this. It's kind of like these openings are at what wage setting? Is it one that the firm wants to offer? Is it one that the workers are going to take them up on? And so you have lots of openings at very low wages, relatively speaking, and not so many when wages go up or remote work is part of it, right? How many people have been uh, heard from their recruiters and it's kind of like I've been working, uh, looking for IT professionals and such and somewhere along the line very quickly, they ask, can this be a remote only job? And if the answer is no, uh, usually ends the interview pretty quickly, um, that type of thing. So there are many things going on. I won't be surprised if part of the gap is uh, closed by openings just being withdrawn, so to speak. Um, you know, and not filled. I do expect people to come into the labor force and take those jobs up. And I think it'll be a lot of rematching too. And that's not exactly embodied in these numbers, right? Um, it's just people with existing firms who are looking for different opportunities. Um, and maybe they'll find them with a, you know, a similar firm, but is more open to that kind of remote work. I mean, one thing that I think is really challenging in this, you can almost convince yourself, um, you know, if you're a manager, um, and you've always liked to have your employees in front of you because that's how you manage. But, um, you know, workers, they, we've learned that we can work, uh, meet our business objectives from home, at least at, at, at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. I think we've been um, pretty successful in that regard. You, you could kind of convince yourself that people just wake up and decided they wanted to work remotely. Or is it the case that there's been a large percentage of people who always asked if they could work remotely, but they always got the answer back, no, we can't be done, just don't know how to do it. I mean, just would love to. And they heard that from other employers. The one thing about the last two years is we demonstrated the technology exists. We've been able to make that work. So you can't just say that can't be done. You have to give other answers. And then other firms are finding different ways to do it. I think the labor market is going to really evolve a lot over the next you know, many years. And it's going to be a challenge for a lot of business models. Shifting from people, culture, and technology, what does it take on an individual level? What mindset do the most exceptional CEOs have? Karen Seidman Becker, who's now the CEO and co-founder of the technology company Clear, reflects on striving for excellence as she navigates a male-dominated industry. The hedge fund world and risk arbitrage, it was the ultimate meritocracy in my, in my mind. If you turn out great numbers and you do great work, there were great rewards, both from a career path perspective. I always wanted to be uh, the person that someone wanted to give the ball to right on the one yard line because they had confidence that I was going to help them get over it. And, and so when you do that, people do give you the ball. And my view was that my results spoke for themselves. And I uh, felt very empowered and very accountable and very supported in my career. For many, there can be a flip side to striving for excellence, and that's avoidance of failure. But Karen goes on to describe the limitless growth mindset that she carries with her as she remains results-focused. It's this mindset that creates a leader with a strong vision and unshakable belief. And to see industries start from nothing and turn into what they become, whether it be industries or companies, front row seat to Amazon, to Priceline, to Apple, and Steve Jobs coming back and what he was able to accomplish quite frankly, um, the implosion of 2000 and 2001, and, and then the growth from the ashes of those companies, 2008, 2009, uh, right? That decline again, was to believe in the art of the possible, was to see great management teams defy all odds um, to build 
incredible companies and businesses and change the world. And it was, and also by the way, to watch uh, some folks who everybody would bet on fall apart, right? And so I believed in the art of the possible. Um, I believed in the passion of subscription-based businesses. We had invested in cable, wireless, and satellite and the power of subscription-based businesses, the power of turnarounds, the power of uh, biometrics and clear was the convergence of all of those. And, uh, and so I believed if, if those folks could do it, we could do it too from an operating and building and, and um, growing perspective. I believe in the art of the possible. I mean, Steve Jobs didn't graduate from college. Jeff Bezos was a trader at D.E. Shaw, brilliant guy. Um, Jeff Boyd, who is on our board, he was the general counsel at Oxford Health and he turned around Priceline and now it's bookings against all odds, built one of the great internet companies in Norwalk, Connecticut. So I believe in the art of the possible. Uh, I believe in the and, I have three kids who, uh, I'm really proud of and uh, a great company and team members. And so um, maybe it's that whole concept of, I didn't want to die and, and pick good stocks. You know, that wasn't enough. And I think that building an incredible company and living a full life, that's just who I am and granddaughter of immigrants. I believe art of the possible, no matter gender, race, religion, ethnicity. And I hope I model that and live that every day. You've been listening to The Forum by the Economic Club of New York, a nonprofit 501c3 dedicated to connecting the world's brightest minds for critical nonpartisan conversations. Be sure to subscribe now to be alerted to future new episodes. To learn more, just visit econclubny.org. I'm your host, Becky Quick. Thanks for listening.